the the waterfaller's passion is second to none. Like the people that I met along the way, the people that helped me out, like this would not have been possible if I didn't have really about 40 people in different locations helping me along the way. Like, and it was cool. Like the guys in, in Oklahoma for the cranes, they found out what I was doing and said, you need to come with us. We want to be part of this. We will make sure that you get what you need to hear because your journey and your story is too cool for us not to help out with. That was Mark Peterson from Mark V. Peterson Hunting on YouTube. This is a sweet episode today, guys. It's just a little snippet of what it is. But Mark started off in the outdoor industry uh, doing a TV show. He also owned a small boutique booking business uh, called Worldwide Trophy Adventures. And back during the Cabela's Bass Pro merger, they actually put their outfitting business up for sale. And so Mark won the bid for that, uh, which took the his business WTA from being a small boutique to uh, the biggest actually in the world. Um, he now has 13 consultants that he works with, and they have recently moved to acquiring outfitters so that he can bring the quality of hunting uh, to as many people as possible. Mark's film 43 has already been released. Check the link in the description for that. And we're going to be talking about that and that journey of shooting all 43 species in one season today and literally you guys this interview with him it's mind-blowing by the way this podcast is brought to you by camera retro camera retro legitimately has upped their game a million times and now they're doing these monthly drops they're unreal so like he's legitimately stock i think he is like i can't prove it but i think he's stockpiling like the dopest shit you've ever seen yeah and then like once a month it drops so we just did the february drop for camel retro so they'll do one again in march and like I'm not kidding. If you're if you at all like vintage camo, yeah, don't look at it. Is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna spend Save all your money. All your money and don't do that. But okay, Connor, bring in the intro and let's get into it with Mark Peterson. So Mark, thanks for uh, joining us today here on the Midwest Flyways podcast. Um, we uh, we're super stoked to have you and super stoked to talk about the the slam. Um, it, and for all of the listeners that are listening here, it is going to, uh, it's already out actually. Um, yes. so the film was released yesterday after, you know, this, this gets released. Um, and so definitely go and check that out right now. Link is in the description. Um, and, uh, we'll, yeah, but let's get right into it. Cal, you got some questions for him? Obviously I do. Mark, I just didn't know if you yeah. want to have a chance to just introduce yourself and maybe just give us a little background on who you are as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on, guys. This is awesome. Yeah. Heck yeah. So I'm I uh, own a few businesses in the outdoors. I've started filming um, TV shows. I'm going on year eight now. So when I first came into the outdoor industry, I was actually a fruit tree farmer before that fifth generation fruit tree farmer. <laughs> Left wow. farming, came into hunting, and I, as I tell everybody, I made the absolute wrong move when you came into the industry and that was starting up a tv show which at the time was strictly <laughs> tv the complete wrong move of anything to go in so i had heard beforehand of hey you got to be around at least three years in tv before companies consider that you make it and that you're going to stick around that's 100 percent true so i started in the outdoor industry with tv shows um truly my passion so i'm a, I, I grew up hunting it's from the first time i could walk i grew up hunting following my dad and our upland dogs and so forth okay what we really found underneath WTA is we have this niche that we've started to add our own, our own owned outfitters. Really, we know what our clients want, and it just kind of fits underneath WTA's umbrella. So we've continued to grow that way. 
And along with that's kind of been my journey of filming and producing. At the time, I always go back to linear because that's what I did for the first really five years before I started to go to the digital avenue. Now we just went from, instead of going from a linear model, we tried to switch it. And now we just have our content go to as many places as we can. Well, that leads up to the slams that I've done. And that was really what my passion are is, is hunting. And it kind of falls into all the companies that I'm part of that really, it makes sense that I film my journeys. And okay. now it's been, so somebody asked me the other day, when's the last time you went on a hunt that you didn't have a field producer with you or that you didn't film yourself because i've got a homegrown series that i film here in michigan that i that i film everything myself so my daughter and i i film everything i don't have any field producers with me and it's been eight years since i've gone in the woods without a camera guy or self-filming my stuff so it's been a been a little bit different so two questions for you one the you said the slams that i've done what what have what slams have those been yeah so my first one i i grew up a a diehard upland hunter had bird dogs ever since I could walk. I followed my my dad, and he had bird dogs. And ever since I've been twelve, I've had bird dogs as well. That was actually giving so me my I, other question: was what was your preferred or like route? And it sounds like it's upland. So it's it's yeah. upland hunting. So I had grown up in West Michigan. Um, so I was born in '83. So if you think about my childhood, it was the early '90s is when at that time you had to be twelve to legally hunt in Michigan. Yeah, that time deer hunting in Michigan was, especially on my side, I say was pretty darn tough. And I mean, if you'd go out and see three or four deer, you were having a good day. And that was on private property. So the way it's changed here has just dramatically gone up for turkeys and deer and so forth. But what you could find at that time is you could go upland hunting. Like you had to put a lot of work, but instead of sitting in a deer blind, you got to get up and move. And it was more of an activity. Yeah. And also at that same time, you have that bond going with your dog. So we always had our own dogs. I have my own dogs now. So it would have been in nine, no, in, in 18... I was sitting there and I actually rolled over in bed and I've got my, one of my Brittany's arrow sleeps next to me, still does to this day, sleeps in a bed right next to my bed. And I rolled over and I had just um, read a book called the Upland Odyssey. It was about an individual, him, and he had two dogs through their lifetime that he took to all these locations and he got what he considered the North America bird slam at the time. And it was 20 different species of upland game birds. And I had read that book and something about it was just like different, like the whole idea of it and the way that he told the the journey through him and really his dogs, it just it connected with me. And I'm sitting there laying in bed and I roll over and I look at my dog arrow and I'm like, you know what, we're going to do that, <laughs> except I'm going to do it in a single season and we're going to film the whole thing because it's never been done before. Yeah. So I go, I go to my team and I go to my partners at the time and they're like, well, first of all, I don't think it can be done in a year. Because think about all the locations. And I had 27 upland species. So like I, we'll, we'll talk about 43 in the waterfall. Like I include some things that are on the fringe, but I want somebody to sit there and be like, he didn't cut any corners on it. He actually went above and beyond what, what everybody considers all the waterfall species. Yeah. And I did the same thing when I did upland. And they're like, well, we don't think you can do it. Because I included a Himalaya snowcock on there in Nevada, which has like – super tough odds of being successful on that was the only trip that i didn't have my dog on just because of of danger for the dog yeah yeah but so that that was my first slam ideas i said i'm gonna go do this and in the fall of 19 it started in nevada for himalayan snowcock and it ended in um sonora with we're grande outfitters for an elegant quail that was number 27 and i finished in february started in um september finished in february so i did the upland slam in a single season and I, what I noticed, because 
The same thing with the waterfall slam. If you watch all the video, especially on linear and everything, is I try to tell the story through a conservation lens. The location, the people, what it means to the, the specific areas, and then also from the species. Now, in the upland one, it was a lot easier because you would go to a specific area, and the species of upland bird would be there. In waterfall, you go to an area, and the birds are coming through at various times. Now, it always seemed like in the waterfall one, I was always three days behind when the birds were there, but I think most <laughs> waterfallers could relate to that yeah, one. Yeah, that's always, life, man. That's just that. life. Yeah, we just had a storm, pushed all the birds through. We haven't got the new birds. Like, that, that, like I oh, heard yeah. that over the last year probably 30 times. That's just so, life, man. Yep. So on the on the upland one that started this whole thing, it would it's telling the conservation story. And what I noticed is just the attention and everything that that slam got because it was so different. If you think about upland hunting, the demographic of upland hunters is so small compared to waterfall or deer or turkey hunters. So just just the attention that got. So after that one was complete, I was like, man, that was different. And truthfully, I had fun doing it right, because yeah. now it wasn't just going and filming locations. Like, okay, I would go and film a location, but there was there was a purpose and it was planning and everything. So I found with myself, it challenged me more to tell the story and tell everything. So I, I came back and instantly went, you know what? I'm going to do the upland or the waterfall slam. Nice. But what I didn't see coming was COVID. I mean, yeah. I kind of messed up with a lot of people. So yeah. I, I had been working on that. And then all of a sudden in March kind of shut the world down. The problem that I had though, to be honest is I had already set up most of my fall schedule around filming for the waterfall slam. Now I had originally set to go to Saskatchewan and Alberta in early to try to get a lot of species just because they're there. But with COVID, I couldn't get across the border to go to Canada. But in July, it was late July, I finally decided, you know what, I'm still going to go for it. I'm not going to go to Canada. At that time, St. Paul wasn't open, but there was talk that it was going to open up. Right. Now I'm like, I'm going to roll the dice and say St. Paul's going to open up. I'm going to be able faith, to get there. Yeah. Everything else is going to be, it's going to be a lot more challenging because I couldn't go to Saskatchewan early season to where all the geese are congregated, where the cranes, like I, you could just go there over a three week period and you could get a really good start on, on the 43 and I yeah. couldn't go and do that. So we adjusted the schedule a little bit and started in, in cold Bay, but that challenge of COVID definitely hopped in there, but it was because I had most of my trips scheduled and I'm one that that likes a challenge. And I'm like, you know what? Things are going to work out. And we hit a lot of bumps along the way. Don't get me wrong on that. Right. But it ultimately worked out. The The one bummer was, is that St. Paul didn't open. So it wasn't even until after I got number 42, the fall of us down in Sinaloa, I still didn't know if I was going to be able to get into Greenland. Right. Right. We yeah. the, we cause you're, we cause your goal for everyone just listening, your goal is to shoot 43 species of waterfowl inside of a four month time frame in obviously the same waterfowl yep. consecutive season. And yep. you were doing that all in North America. Correct. All Correct. in North America. So what I, okay. what I consider is the North America waterfall slam. I call it 40, 43. Like there's like, I don't think you'll get 10 guys to all agree on what the waterfall. I know. Right. Cause you be. hear 41, you hear 43. Yeah. 41, 43. Like, and then you get like, do you count the Mexican mallard? Do you not count? Like I, I just went and you're like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to count it all. I'm going to throw it all in there. And then, you know, I'm going to have some people say, why are you counting a coot? And I'm going to be like, let's be honest. 
Talk to a waterfall hunter and ask him if they've ever shot a coot. So <laughs> right, right, right. Liar, so never listen to anything he ever says again. So yeah. I'm like, that's what, that's what a waterfaller like. Okay, so we've all shot a coot before. Let's add it to the list. Yeah, that's like, hey, how bad was your day? We shot a coot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's like, hey, yeah, yeah. You're a waterfall hunter. That's that happens to you. weren't exactly. you saying? weren't you saying that a guy came? You met a guy in Minnesota. Dude, yeah, I was going to tell you, this is pretty funny. Um, me and Joey, the other guy who was, you know, usually with us, mm-hmm. Joey and I were hunting just like a local lake by the house one day, and this guy mm-hmm. pulled up, and he just had like this like rinky canoe with a little trolling motor on it, and he dropped it off by himself, and um, we were like, you hunting by yourself today? And he's like, yeah, yep, and uh, we were like, I don't know, you can join us or something if you want, and this guy was like, no, I'm, I'm here for a specific reason, and we were like, what, what are you doing? He's like, I'm here to shoot a coot. And we're like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here just to shoot the most perfect coot because he's like that, you know, as part of the 43 species of waterfall that I'm trying to shoot. And, uh, the me and Joe were like, were Oh my God. He's like, yeah, this lake's notoriously good for coot. <laughs> like, that's a bummer. I'm like, yeah, we didn't know. And so this guy goes out there though. And we, you know, like we saw him shoot one time go pick up the fattest coot ever and just roll out. Like, he was done. He was there for that coot. That was it. That was his Yeah, day. man. Done. But, um, so you, so this uh, dream started in kind of, you know, early with your dog and the upland uh, hunting, always talking with the dog. It's yep. where the dreams start. And then, um, so 2019, obviously you're planning this early 2020, COVID hits, July, and then you start, is it September is when you started? Yeah. We start. we started in, uh, no, it was October. 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 Yeah. It was okay. mid October cold bay. Okay. So normally so, I was originally, I was originally set to start in Saskatchewan in September when their season opens. Right. And I mean, just how the migration works. One, one of the outfitters that we own at WTA is Goose Haven. And I always tell everybody in Saskatchewan, we're the first thing the birds see after they clear the provincial forest. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like our fields are the first thing. So we have multiple days to where we'll have eight guys in the field and we'll limit on, on Canadian geese, which limits eight. We'll limit in 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just the amount of birds. So I was like, I'm going to start there, obviously, because I can get all my geese just about. I can get a, I can get a crane. I can get all this other stuff. Yeah. But without that, then all of a sudden we adjusted. And where was the next spot you could go to? So we kind of picked Cold Bay just because it's a melting pot of birds early right. season. Right. And then you can get, like, there's a, ch- a chance for the Aleutian Widgeon or Aleutian Greenwing, which I just included those as optim- optimistic birds. And I yeah. was able to get a, a Drake Greenwing, Aleutian Greenwing, which was pretty cool being up there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for all those listening, that's in Alaska, right, is what you're talking? Correct. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep, down on the Aleutian chain, right? I mean, if you check out Cold Bay, it's – it's pretty small. Oh yeah, pretty small. I want to yeah. say there's there was like sixty people in the town that stay all year. It was okay. pretty remote. And then while yep. you were up there, is that when you went for your barrows, or did you go back up later? I had to go. I had to go back up. So I went back up to Kodiak later for the barrows. Okay. Were you yep. in Kodiak just to get a barrows? Just to get a barrows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and did you so, shoot anything else there, like randomly, yes. or was it just okay? Yes, no, it was, but the specific reason was a Barrows. Don't yeah. get me wrong. The reason Dad and I, we flew up to Kodiak just for a Barrows Golden Night. Okay. Like, you'll hear a lot of me say different stories, and you'll shake your head being like, this dude's crazy. <laughs> yep, 100%. So, okay, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, tell me tell me a crazy one then. So, uh, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll move along the list, and All you'll right. hear plenty of them. But the, <laughs> but the Barrows one, so we were planning, like, you look at the list and how – 
through the upland one is how I learned to break this down is, okay, break it down into categories. So like a Barrow's Goldeneye, where, where is the highest concentration of Barrow's Goldeneye? Well, it's around Kodiak. Yeah, you can get lucky and shoot one on the West Coast, but, but just the odds of being out there, that's a, it's very tough to do that in a single year of planning on that. That's yeah. the number of days in the field. So that's I'm going off the coast of Washington, and I'm hunting yeah. for 45 days. Yeah, you're gonna get, you may get a Barrow's in 45 days of hunting off the coast. That's yeah, a, yep. That's, that's just how you'd have to do it. I went and go, okay, we're going to go to Kodiak, get a Barrows, because that's one of the ones that's specifically there. But while we're in Kodiak, what else can we get? How many of the different scoters can we get? Yeah. Can we get, like, we, Dad and I got our Harlequin up in Cold Bay. We each shot three of our four for the season limit, so we were able to shoot a fourth Harlequin there. And Old cool. Squaw, could we get an Old Squaw there? Okay, I didn't get an Old Squaw there. Dad shot two drakes in a, in a gorgeous hen, but I have – as I plan this out, it's okay. If I didn't get it there, I've got a backup. Each each species had a backup built into it somewhere okay. in the list that I was that I was going going down. Okay. And there's some that were like, I would only get one shot. Hooded merganser. Like you can't can't really go anywhere specifically for a hooded merganser. Right. I just got lucky in Arkansas that we had a rain day when we were there, and we're at this point it was. 75 percent through with the slam and at this point it's hey it's a rain day cool we're gonna go grind it out we're gonna see what we can get yeah. we went out sat in the pond and got soaked for two hours didn't see a single bird when we were driving out that night though because we left early we drove by a small pond and there were two hooded two drake hooded mergansers and a couple of hens okay the next day we went out shot i think our less our lesser scop in the morning off of a, a fish pond there and had some time before we were going to go hunt for specs that night. So we're like, all right, let's go swing by and see if that hooded merganser was there. And then the same hooded mergansers were in the same pond as the rain day before. Nice. Those, that was the only hooded merganser I saw in all of my hunting all fall. Really? Same thing for the common, same thing for the red-breasted. I only had one shot at a red-breasted, a common, and a hooded merganser along the whole, the whole journey. That's funny. That's so crazy. <laughs> for for yeah. mergansers especially, most people are like, ah, yeah, slap well, a murder. Well, and that's it. That's exactly what you're saying, though. It's like you don't think about the merganser until all of a sudden yeah. you have to shoot a damn merganser. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So mine, I get, I get the question a lot, what was the what was the toughest one? And that, one for me, was a canvas back. And it was like, I've, I've waterfall hunted a lot. I've never shot a canvas back in my life until this past year as part of the slam. I've seen them in North Dakota when we go out there multiple times. It was just they never flew my side of the blind or the when I was in the blind by myself, they never flew close enough. Like, it was just one of those. And I always looked at them and went, man, that is such an awesome bird. Yeah. yeah. I've never been getting one. So Matt Gindorf at WTA was the one that we, we lined the schedule up. If I was in the field, I would tell them what's going on. Like, if I was in a location not, and being like, man, I'm not going to get this species here. Just like I can tell. Day three, they hadn't, hadn't shot very many in the weather or whatever. He would work with me, and I'm like, we need to bounce here. So it was the canvas back mid-January. So think about seasons in the U.S. are we were within 15 days of closing. So a lot of the birds, like, I wasn't really worried about a cinnamon teal because guess what? I can bounce down to Mexico to get a cinnamon teal. Right. Like they're canvas back. Canvas back, yes, there's some in Mexico, but it's not like you're going to bounce down there like a cinnamon and see a cinnamon teal. If you go out three days of Mexico, you're going to see a cinnamon teal in certain spots. You can't go and do that for a canvas back. So we were running short on short on time, and I hadn't seen a canvas back all year. So yeah. We did an audible because we had some safety built in in January to say, okay, at this point in time, we're going to adjust and go where we need to based off what we've gotten so far. And a canvas back, 
was the one I was missing that was higher towards the list. That and the Greater Scop. And I'd missed, like, the Greater Scop's another story, but I had missed a Greater Scop in Cold Bay in winds that were about uh. 45. Like, it was one of those days that was, you're out there hunting and it was stupid, and you could see these Greater Scop get up on the other side of the lake, and they had the tailwind to their back, and oh, my gosh. It was one of those out of range, out of range. Oh, my, do, do, do. Oh, behind on all three. And you're like, and I'm sitting there going, man, that would have been really nice to get that one. Because, again, I had never shot a greater Scott before either. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm sitting there like, that one's going to add up. And in January, I'm sitting there, I don't have a greater Scott. I don't have a canvas bag. Need to start making plans for that. Yeah. We went to Lake Seminole in Georgia, one of the highest concentrations of Kansas backs in January anywhere in the world. <laughs> so we went there, again, specifically for one bird. Yep. And we're sitting at Lake Seminole. First day, we saw, I don't know, 400 canvas backs. And I didn't know this at the time. Canvas backs fly the same as geese do. They get up really high and in a V. It's crazy. Yeah. We're watching fly back and forth. Like, I didn't know this. I've hunted my whole life, but I've never specifically hunted canvas backs. Like, sure. you see one or two. And this is uh, like adding to the memory bank of everything that's going on. And I'm sitting there day one hunting canvas backs. Again, I call this my white whale. We'd been standing alongside of an island for seven and a half hours. I've got two camera guys with me and Justin, my guide. And it's like one of those, we've seen birds flying. We haven't had anything come anywhere remotely next to our decoys. And it's like 2.30 in the afternoon. And it's one of those, like, if you're going to take a time or talk, or like this is the time sure. that you normally put. Mm-hmm. Justin's like, guys, come here. He's got his phone. And on his phone, he's got the week before in the same spot He's showing us a group of canvas backs that came into the decoys. So Kelton, Justin, my field producers, and me, I've got my shotgun sitting up on the side. You know, we do the waiter walk on over to see Justin in the middle. Two can't camera over here, camera over there, my shotgun. Justin literally has his phone, and he goes and hits play, and we all look up at the same time as two Drake canvas backs come into the spread at 18 yards. <laughs> and we're all standing there like this going – Oh, no. Yeah. And it was one of those just like head down, nothing anybody could do. And that was the only canvas back that we had in range that day. Wow. So now we're sitting there and I'm like, this just adds to, you know, it's the white whale. I'm, it's it's going to have to grind out. The next day we go out, we get till noon. We don't have anything. Justin comes up with this idea. He's like, I've used this a few times, but I'm not going to lie to you. It's not going to be fun. I take these reeds and I stick them right in the middle of, of the lake. There's, there's sandbars out there. We can find a spot that's only about four and a half feet deep. We'll stick these reeds up. You'll literally be right in the middle of the flyway. We've got decoys on both sides. He goes, they won't land, but they will, lo- they will pitch low enough and you'll get a flyby. I'm like, okay. We pull up at 12, readjust, get over there, pull the reeds up, set up the blind, which you're floating to do. So we get it. And I haven't eaten lunch. So I've got a bag of Chex Mix in my blind bag, but I can't bring my blind bag with me because everything, I've got my waders on the outside. You can't have your coat because I've got water coming up yeah. to my chest. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those. And you don't think about it. I can't have my shotgun down either because everything would be dripping in the water. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I haven't eaten yet. We just get dropped off. Literally just get dropped off. I tell Justin, my camera guy, I've got one guy standing next to me. I'm the camera and one guy on the shore using a long lens to catch birds coming in and out. No sooner than the boat got out, I've got the gun around my shoulders with a sling on it, 
me being a smart guy, I drop the sling down around my chin so now I can use my hands to dig into my Chex Mix bag. Sure, like, yeah. I'm going to knock out this Chex Mix. Killing it. I'm hammering the Chex Mix. As Justin looks up and goes, canvas back, canvas back. And I look up and these, a group of six is coming out of the sky and I'm sitting here with a shotgun on my side, a handful of Chex Mix. Yeah. And I do this miraculous shot and I pick out the Drake and bang, bang, bang. I shoot three times and I hit them all three times. And he flies off, and I'm like, I see him drop in the distance. And Justin on the shore grabs the boat, does the pitch over, picks him up, and yells. But what, you, what you'll catch in the films is that I instantly drop the checks mix, and I shoot three times. And as I turn to the camera, just out of habit, I'm licking the cheese off my fingers. From <laughs> I'm literally like, and everybody, like, if you don't realize what happened, I literally went from a handful of checks mix in the side of my waiter bag. Yeah. Inside my waiter bag. To shooting like that, and that was my canvas back. And it was like all wow. the all the season up to all that time in Lake Seminole, and it was over just like that. Right. So question student, Go ahead. Um so the question as a as a camera guy, um, that yeah. is gonna be a difficult shot to get. <laughs> um and is, he got it. Did he? Okay. Is yeah, there any he got it. Is there anything that was in like any of these shots that you got? Because you had you said you had two camera guys. Is there mm-hmm. any of these shots that they didn't get it, or like you just like had to prioritize the shot over it, or you know getting on no, film? No. So or? how? So what I learned from the Upland Slam because I only had at the beginning of the Upland Slam I only had one camera guy with me. And if you think about Upland hunting, it happens like this after five hours of walking behind a dog. All of a sudden, that dog will lock up. And it's game on in 30 seconds. So if you think about the lull you get as a hunter, yeah, think about the lull of carrying a camera now. How many shots do I need of Mark's boots walking across the leaves? How many shots do I need of Mark looking left or looking right? Like all of a sudden you look down and the camera guy, like he's just like trying to stay awake as he's walking. So yeah. what I learned is that I need two guys so we can rotate really who's on and who's off. And then we can get far shots and close shots. And from the success of that, I'm like, you know what, for everything on the waterfall slam, I'm either, I'm either going to have two or in some locations I had three guys. So then we could set up multiple angles and really capture everything. Yeah. But Justin, Justin Fabian's my main guy that films everything with me. And he is remarkably quick with his camera on going from nothing to up. So out of this whole slam, there wasn't one shot that was missed. That's wow, that's of, so crazy. Everything. And there are lots of them that I only had one shot. Like, I go back. I only shot one canvas back, mm-hmm. one hooded, well, like the, one like one grader. Like, that's all I shot through this whole journey. So there were a lot of them, like, if he didn't get it, we were going to have to try to tell the story of, hey, I got it, but now yeah. it's not on not on film. And my whole thing was, like, I want to do it all in a single season, and I really wanted them all to be on film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and with that, a lot of guys then prioritize the film. It's like, you got this, you got this, you know, and, like, waiting for yep. that the, the go-ahead to film. And so yep. that's cool, though, that, that you got a good camera guy. And and Justin Justin would probably tell you he would not want me to turn around after the fact. And when I always ask, did you get it? If he said no, he would probably not want to see me if he said no. Yeah. Like he knew that would be like, that's going to be a bad conversation if I didn't get that and I turn around and that was the one for one for the year. Like, he'll, he'll tell you that. 100%. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. No, that's crazy. What would you say, I mean, legitimately, what was the hardest one to get? And that could be like, that could be yeah. a two-sided question, right? Because it's like, 
what was the hardest one to actually, you know, shoot? Maybe it is yep. a canvas bag. Or what was the one you had to go to the greatest lengths to shoot? You know, so the, the hardest one, it would be either the canvas bag or, or if you added everything together, the hardest one for me on this one would have been the King Eider. Yeah. Just because St. Paul Island was closed because of COVID. So they weren't allowing any non-residents of St. Paul on the island. How close? So to, like, tell me the story. Cause like, I want to understand like how close to the timeline with the King Eider. Cause I'm assuming that was, that was your last bird, right? Being the it late, was, like latest in the year. Yep. So yeah, like, so how did that go timeline, for you? I was set to go to St. Paul the second week of January. Okay. And they officially, like, we officially threw the hat in on St. Paul. I think it was right after Christmas. It was, like, the 26th or 27th of December. We officially got to, hey, we're not going to open up for season this year. Okay. I'm like, okay. Well, now I'm already halfway through the slam, actually over halfway through the slam in December, and be like, okay, well, I'm not going to get the king. So my mentality went at that point to, okay, We'll try, like, there's four or five kings shot on the East Coast a year, and there's a couple on the West Coast, but, like, very rare. Like, if you're talking, okay, there's only four kings shot on the East Coast, think about the amount of hunters and the amount of hours that they spend out there that they're right. usually on a year or shoot two or four. Yeah, That's that's beyond lucky or, or just stupid luck to be able to get one of those. Yeah. So I'm like, there's a chance there. We work with some guys in Alaska that, hey, they're sometimes off Kodiak, there there's some groups that come later in the year so i literally had guys off the coast kodiak just as they're going out running their normal operation if they see kings they're going to call me and i'm going to jet up to kodiak to try to get extremely lucky so it was like i'm still going to continue on and i'm like man if i get 42 out of 43 and the king isn't what i Uh, the king isn't the one right i'll go I'll, i'll be like I'll go back to St. Paul next year when it opens and I'll complete and I'll tell it it's not going to be done in a single season, but I'll be able to tell the story. Like I could get it in a year. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave it everything I had. So we're like, it was pretty down there. And then I got back in the swing because the first trip after the new year was, I went to Oklahoma for cranes. Okay. Um, And getting my Canadian goose there, but, but went for cranes. I couldn't go earlier just because of my schedule. Um, Cranes are definitely better earlier, but I, I mean, I still had a great day on cranes and limited out. And those are like on cranes before I go, before I go back to the King, I understood like on cranes, I'd never hunted cranes before. And they're not like Canadian geese to where they take off the roost and they just come to the field that they eat. I didn't know Can- or cranes sometimes stop on two or three fields as like regrouping. So the group will take off from the river and they'll come and land on a field and other groups will come and they get into a bigger group and then they bounce to another field and then they bounce to another field. So as you scout cranes, you literally have to watch. It's not like geese were like, ah, they landed there. Perfect. We can go on that field. No, you got to wait because they may take off 20 minutes later and bounce to another field and go to another field. So when you set up your decoys, you want to be on the last field that they've fed on. Oh, interesting. And it's one of those things. It's not like first thing in the morning you're going to have action because the, the cranes have to get up and they do all that staging before they get to you. So you get everything set up in the dark, and then really you've got like an hour and 15, hour and a half, usually until the cranes get to us. So like where the cranes that I shot, they were roosting 18 miles away in a river in the field that we shot them at. It was 18 miles away. Yeah, that's wow. crazy. I, I had like I've, again, I've waterfall hunt my whole life, but never hunted cranes. I didn't know that until I was actually there to experience it. And they're like, the guys are telling me, I'm like, that's the most fascinating part of this whole hunt. Like, not very many people know that they do that. And I, for whatever yeah. reason, my brain just tells me that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's like, crazy. I'm sure, I didn't know that, but yeah, very it, cool. 
And it, I, it's one thing to see a crane fall out of the air, by the way. If you, if you haven't done it, you got to put it on the list and you got you to get there and do that. That's, that is amazing. And then when they're just a long, big bird. Yeah. That's, that was a cool one. So anyway, back on, back on the King. So 26th, 27th, we're not going to St. Paul. We start scrambling on other, other options. I'm continuing on Oklahoma. Then we get into Arkansas and we're, we're going on different locations. And it was really in about mid January, the concept of Greenland came up. Okay. There's been some guys that have shot Kings off Greenland. We know they're there. They're actually a substance bird. If you're a resident in Greenland, wow. okay. they shoot them for meat. So think about that. They shoot King Eiders for the meat. That's insane. Wow. All, all the birds. So instantly you're like, okay, well, there's gotta be a lot of Kings there. If they're doing that, there's been nothing that's been filmed there, but I've seen some pictures of one trip from U S citizens that have gone there. There were two guys that went up there and they shot a handful of Kings and, you know, that was 19. So it was a year before COVID shut everything down. Okay. We're working with somebody that we've worked with up there before, and he's like, absolutely, they're kings here. All right, let's get working. I'm perfect. Let's go. Well, that's when we hit the but Greenland's not allowing any non-residents in because yeah. of COVID. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And there at that time, if you go back in the world, remember all the restrictions were always on like a two or three week yeah. revolving yep, window. Yep, yep. I was like, okay, well, the government's going to meet again on the 18th of January. They may lessen the restrictions. So we always bounce to that next one. And finally it got to the point of it doesn't look like they're going to open for anybody, but there is an option that you can apply that you would say your trip to Greenland would increase the tourism from Greenland. Yeah. And you're definitely would something that that would be around the COVID. So at this point in time, they left a cup. They have let, they let business people from Europe come into Greenland to operate their businesses. So it was pitched that if you come with the idea or the concept of your trip is going to generate the tourism behind it. And I'm sitting here going, well, yeah, that's what I do every single day. That's easy. Yeah. Right. So, I have to build the structure of how there's now going to be King Eider hunting outfitters in Greenland. That's, that's easy. I can do that. So we submitted it, submitted that. Perfect. Two weeks later approved. And now like fast forwarding, that's into, it was mid February by the time we got that. So we had got that approval. It was like two days after I got back from Sinaloa, taking my fall of whistling duck was for summer 42. So we found out I'm going to be able to get to Greenland in early March to be able to get to 43. I'm going to static. They, they approved it. Now it's going through. Now we really got to hurry because we got basically two and a half weeks. They hit us with, okay, you can come in. Here are the restrictions. You got to test negative three times. Then once upon arrival, you also have to quarantine for five days in a, oh. in a, in a hotel in Kangaroo. There's not a lot going on in Kangaroo Greenland. Can't leave your room. They're going to bring food to you. Okay, I can do it for five days. So I got, we were all in a hotel room. Matt Gindorf came with me on this trip from WTA, myself, and then I had three camera guys. So five people total were all in separate rooms for five days. Oh, my gosh. Didn't see, it didn't seem that bad going into it. But, man, by day four of sitting in a hotel room with one English channel, which was <laughs> CNN News of all things, and I, I don't think I've ever watched that many Netflix shows. Like, it was just like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do today? I'm going to wake up. I try to do a little workout in my room for like oh my 45 gosh. but there's nothing there. So you're doing like you're doing push-ups and your arms are killing you cuz you're on day 4 of doing push-ups. <laughs> you're like, I'll just curl back in bed here for another 
16 hours today. Oh my so we, anyway, we made, made it through that. But bef- before we got there, now all of a sudden we hit the restriction of there are no commercial flights into Greenland because there, there's no, nobody's allowed in. So well, how am I going to get there? Yeah. I had, I had to arrange a private plane to take me from Michigan to Greenland because there's not a single commercial flight to get you there. Yeah. In Greenland, you have to land in Kangalusik because it's the only airport. It's actually a U.S. military base in Kangalusik. long enough to, to land the planes. From Kangalusik, you have to take an Air Greenland flight down to Nook, which is about an hour and 15, but it's a propeller plane so it can land on the short runways. So after quarantine... Luckily, Air Greenland was running because they were still running cargo between all, all the cities. So we sat on a plane with no other people, just 30 rows of seats full of cargo in front of us. <laughs> so we took that flight into Nook. Now we finally make it to Nook after all these hurdles and, and hoops and everything we get through. And the traditional way of hunting king eiders in Greenland is trolling or drifting. So you'll be in a boat. They'll have a string behind you. You catch the current and you kind of drift. And if you see a king, you cut your motor and you try to drift into it. What's the limit? <laughs> Ten. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my word. Ten Dude, we're, hey, we're going to Greenland yeah. this year, bro. <laughs> we're going to Greenland this year. Ten kings. And think about it. These birds are in March. So you see how gorgeous the birds are coming from St. Paul in oh. January? Give them two more months than what they look like. Yeah. So we're we're there and the first day we're gonna go, we're gonna do it the weather was a little bit rough so as you leave nook you go through a bay that's about a 45 minute drive and you get out on these chain of islands and of course kings live right on the outside next to the ocean in the nastiest part that you can get to that first day we couldn't get out there because of the weather so we were drifting on the inside and frank the outfitter's like let's do this day one just to get you a king to make sure you get your king because my real thing was i wanted we brought our own decoys up there we brought our own spinners that we painted we wanted to shoot a king offshore with a string of decoys. Like we wanted to be the first ones to do that in Greenland. Yeah. The first day we went out and I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the full story. So we went out and I was up first and we'd been drifting in and we hadn't been able to get any shots. We've been at it for about three or four hours and no shots on King. Are you yet. seeing King Eiders right now? Oh yeah. Okay. And you're seeing, you're seeing them flying, you're glassing, you're seeing them on the water and you just see their head, and it just it, it's just shocking to see it in real life. Oh, like, pictures look great, but to see it in real life, it is amazing. Yeah. So you're seeing them, and, you're, and, like, every time you see one, too, the heart is just, like, starting to go. And then as you drift in, like, it flies at 75 yards. You're like, okay. Justin has his drone, takes his drone up, except we're in a boat rocking in the back. Justin's landing his, his drone, and I've done this hundreds of times to where I catch the drone out of the air. Because he doesn't have anywhere yep. good to land. So he hovers it. I grab it. I tip it sideways. It shuts off. Hundreds of times. This time, I grab it off the back of the boat. And as I turn to go down, my pinky goes out. Oh. And the blade just freaking slaps the top of my pinky off. And there is, it, it took a little bit of the nail, but there is blood everywhere. Like, and it, of course, you can't find the first aid kit on the boat. It's buried underneath the second seat in the back. So yeah. we finally get that. During this whole time... We're drifting in on a king, and I'm, I've literally got blood everywhere. I'm holding like this, trying to do it. Matt slips up to the front of the boat, and he shoots the first king of the, of the trip right off the boat right there while I was holding my bloody finger in the back. Nice. And it was just, he got that thing in the boat, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, just gorgeous. I finally get taped up, get to the front of the boat, and it was about an hour later, I shot my first king drifting. Okay. And I, we ended up, I shot two kings that day drifting. 
Uh, Matt got one and a couple of comments. So it was good. But what that did is it took all the pressure off. That was 43. I'm, I'm done. Now it's like, let's go out. We've got three more days here. Let's go out and try to get a king from shore. Well, the next day the weather was even crappier, so we couldn't leave the bay. We hunted in the bay, and between the two of us shot 18 common eiders. <laughs> okay. Nice. The limit's 20. So we bounced between <laughs> oh. three or four different spots, and I also shot a cormorant, which is legal in Greenland, the only spot that it is legal. I, wow. I, how many times you've been out and how many times you wanted to shoot one? Yeah, 100%. So it's really 44. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and Frank's like, no, they're legal. 100% you can shoot those here. And I'm checking in the regulations. I'm like, man, you can. All of a sudden, a cormorant's coming from the left, and I couldn't fight the urge. I'm like, got a cormorant. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But like, the is, it, iron, is it as ugly as I want it to be? It's probably uglier. <laughs> yeah. Just like, and if you touch it, you will smell like fish for the rest of your life. Just like, a just bag of shit bird. <laughs> yeah. Just like, just there. But what we found is that we couldn't get out where the kinks were at. But you could 100% tell these common eiders had never seen decoys or a spinner before. Yeah. It was like, I go back, it was like when the mojos came out. I was going to say, was it like what everyone says when spinners first came out in A spot and C spot? It would not matter if you had a spinner? Yep. And mallards would drop out of the heavens because they saw the spinner. And that's exactly how it was. These eiders would be cruising, and they would see that string of decoys, and the second they hit that spinner, so we're wow. commons at 14 yards. Wow. I mean, and they, they're just so colored up this time of year, just big and bulky. So that was hands down to me. Like, I, I've had a lot of great waterfall shoots in Mexico before, but nothing sea duck-wise, because every sea duck hunt, like, if you go out on the East Coast and you shoot four riders, you shot your limit, and yeah. the day doesn't get any better than that. That's yeah. a great day. So now I'm like, man, I shot ten riders today, a cormorant, and it's, I've only been out here six hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> better than this. So we go back now. Now we're going out for day three. We finally get one that the weather the weather's good. Yeah. So we're going out on the on the end of the island, and we just kind of bounce around. It's all day. It's cold. Like. Hands are freezing, feet are freezing. We bounced around, and at this point, we we put a pretty good hammer on the old commoniters again. It's, yeah. I mean, it's tough to pass on a Drake commoniter coming in. Even though you're yeah. waiting for a king, you see this thing coming in, it's like, nope, got to do it. Yeah. So we bounce out the last set of the day. We get out, and it's the second to last island. Like, you can see the open, open ocean. You can see um, the coral line to where the ocean's crashing about – 700 yards away windy snow coming sideways and for every waterfall hunter it's looking back it's the perfect setup hell yeah i was gonna say this just feels like waterfall you've got sunglasses on because you can't take it off because the wind's blowing so hard even though it's dark like your eyes will just instantly dry out yep the mojos are freezing up i'm leaving the mojos in my in my coat trying to unfreeze the wings we get them unfroze, we set up, and a couple comments come in, and again, we shoot a couple more comments because you just got to do that. And all of a sudden, I shoot a comment, and I'm sitting there, and I'm reloading my gun, so Justin's already got the camera rolling, and Matt's up around this point a little bit, and all of a sudden, I hear him yelling, King! King! And I look up, and this King is cruising. Do I still got... Yeah, there you go. I lost the signal for a second. No, you're good. And I look up, 
and this king is cruising at about 45 yards, left to right. I mean, just humming. And one thing I forgot to say, in Greenland, you can use a semi-auto, but you can only have a shotgun that holds two shells. So you don't get your third shot. So I had to put a special rod in that limit to where I could put one in the chamber and then one up so I'd have two. Yeah. I kill a lot of birds on my third shot. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. <laughs> my third shot, I, it kind of takes one just to get everything set, two to see how far I am behind, and three really gets me right in the zone. That's, yeah. that's just the type of guy I am. I, I shoot a lot, and I'm just honest. That third shot, I've, I've killed a lot of things. Pheasants, ducks, you name it. Mm-hmm. So first one, and of course it's flying right off the water. So I shoot the first one, and dang it, now all of a sudden you can see I'm, I'm six to eight feet behind it. And your, your mind's tricking, like, oh, no, I'm behind. And my second shot, I pull way ahead, and this bird just crumples up and falls in the water. And and I try to hold my emotions pretty good when I'm on camera and everything, and that was just one of those things that instantly just started yelling, hands up in the air, and the king, how the water was, it drifted right next to me. So I got to be able to pick up that king. Oh, my gosh. Right right next to me and it was just like i I still get chills talking about it right now that's cool like that memory i'll I'll remember that while i'm on my deathbed yeah dude like so many hours to get Mm -hmm. there so much commitment and to shoot it and just have it float into you it's just like yeah it's crazy man and it's just i mean again it was like the like i look back at it now that day was just perfect and then we had one more we had, and I'll tell the story for Matt. We had one more. It was coming on Matt's side, and this was the this was the king that did the game. It was coming right up the string. Yeah. And I hit Matt with a king, and he shoots behind, and I'm on it because it's coming straight to me, and I want Matt to shoot one from shore. And he shoots the second time, and he hits it a little bit in the butt, and it goes to take off, and I'm like, nope, bam. And that was that was technically Matt's, Matt's bird. He should have got that one, but he, he'll be opening eyes. He's like, I shot behind twice. I just got so nervous. It was the first time seeing a king like that, not drifting, coming in, and he missed it. So I got two kings that day from shore, and that one washed up next to me. So if you've seen a lot of the pictures, it's from that day on shore, those two kings washing up next to me. And then our, our pictures that day, like all the rocks we were at are covered in ice. I mean, it's just. It's just I mean, as it badass as it could possibly get. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It was just awesome. So awesome. from, from this whole trip and all 43 or, you know, this whole year, like what, what's been your biggest like takeaway, um, for, you know, like or message or whatever, or what's the film about, you yep. know, maybe that, I guess. So 40, 43 is about, it's the, it's my journey. And I would call the people I meet along the way for it. Mm-hmm. Like it's all culminated, like, and it's really tough to tell the stories. That's why we've done so many different films and on linear, like we produced, trips three or four different ways and putting them out there to try to tell different stories of the same trip. Like my takeaway, there's multiple takeaways from this whole journey. One, like I've been a waterfall hunter my, my whole life, but I haven't traveled as much as I did last year just because I didn't go all the locations. The, the waterfallers passion is second to none. Like, the people that I met along the way, the people that helped me out, like, this would not have been possible if I didn't have really about 40 people in different locations helping me along the way. Like, and it was cool. Like, the guys in in Oklahoma for the cranes, they found out what I was doing and said, you need to come with us. 
We want to be part of this. We will make sure that you get what you need to hear because your journey and your story is too cool for us not to help out with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I would get stories like that. And along each spot, like in Alaska, Brian up in Alaska on Kodiak, been waterfall guiding for 20 years up there. Hard, cold, like, and he knows it to a T, but he has to hunt those sea ducks different than Ruben does off Rhode Island or Frank did up in Greenland. Like the way that you have to adjust based on where you're at and what the birds are doing at different times of the year. Yeah. Like it's those nuances of, man, these, these guys live and breathe it. Just like, just like you guys, you live and breathe it. You pick up the nuances and every time you go to the field, you're better than you were yesterday. But at that same time, your passion has almost clicked up a little bit more than it was yesterday. Yeah. Because I learned more and it's all about this, this kind of trade of, you know, picking up and I'm, I'm learning as I go. Like every time you can go to no matter how many times you've gone out and duck hunted, you can go in the field and learn something new every single day. Totally. Or be with somebody like, or somebody that you meet on a lake in the middle of nowhere and, and you ask me you want to join and he goes, yeah. And all of a sudden you find out this guy's stories and what he can teach you just from what he's learned over 10 years. Yeah. Like that's the beauty of waterfall hunting. And I tell everybody like I, I big game hunt a lot too, just in everything I film, but I love waterfall hunting because I tell everybody who cares. Nobody cares who shot the biggest duck. Not a single guy. Right. But you go into, you go into a deer camp and it's, man, it's, it's competitive in like that waterfall hunt. It's, it's more of that camaraderie because you can talk. You can have the experiences and let's face it. How many crazy people just go out in, in snow or ice storms and go waterfall hunting. For right. Right. Hours? Yeah. Like you really limit down the type of people and, and you're like-minded while you're out there. Like that, that was part of the cool part is in that and learning just how the birds work, like what they do with the storms. Like I would always do it here in Michigan or we'd go out and hunt North Dakota just about every year and seeing what the birds did there as you would bounce. Like you're like, okay, I came out one year, third week of October it seems to be a little late I'm gonna bounce to the second week of October next year I'm gonna bounce a little bit and you'd always like we'd always try to play with the days and get there but it was always we'd never get the days right right like, yeah the weather changes so much of course the yeah the birds aren't dependent on a time of year they're dependent on what's happening around them yep, yep. yeah and that's where I was joking earlier like I always felt for the first six weeks I felt like I was three days late in every location that I went to 100 percent right? Just and it's it's just weather and that's that was the part of man what these birds go through from the time they leave the north to go to the south to really rest for a couple weeks and then they start the journey again. So when I was down in Sinaloa in February, they already had pintails and so forth that had come down and had already turned around and started heading north again. Wow. Oh yeah, totally. And you'll get that you'll get that bouncing type of effect like all through season. You know, like the same mm-hmm. thing happens with like Louisiana right now, not seeing as many mallards. Well, I yep. mean, Missouri and Kansas have flooded corn out their ass. And so these mallards, like they're like, well, we don't really want to leave Missouri. Yeah, exactly. You know, like we don't really want to leave Kansas. And so they, they mm-hmm. only do if they have to, you yep. know, and the minute and they those, can come back, they'll come right back. And it's funny you touched on that. So like that. That's actually adjusted the flyways. As you guys know, it's it's moved the flyways over. So we were down in Arkansas, and we were hunting specks. And down where we were hunting specks in Arkansas 12 years ago, there weren't specks there. Yeah. They just cruised through, and they were gone. Now they hang out there just from how agriculture changes farther south and where they stay. Like, that that parts of it, how those birds work and adjust 
as they as they migrate each year and how they move like that's that's truly amazing what they do yeah and you've probably experienced quite a bit you know in this last year just in terrain of like you know hunt and see beaches yep. you know timber did you hunt any timber for anything we hunted flooded timber in arkansas my first time okay. my first time and it was awesome yeah. was that were you like targeting mallards in arkansas then doing that so I put Arkansas on there because if you ask, like, if you ask a waterfall hunter, what is North America waterfall hunting? Yeah, yeah. How many of them say flooded timber flooded, in Arkansas? A hundred percent. Yeah. So I, I put that on there because I had never hunted Arkansas before in flooded timber. Yeah. I put that on there because I wanted to be part of this journey. Even if I went there and I shot all the same type of ducks that I've already got before. Yep. Yep. I still wanted to go to Arkansas and do that. hundred percent. Yeah. There. 75 degrees the first day and we shot a few mallards i shot my ring i did shoot my ring neck there my one chance at a ring neck was out of a flooded timber i shot my speck there the hooded merganser so i mean it was still like that trip still paid off as getting three of the 43 out of there but it was i really scheduled that one just to be able to hunt flooded timber in arkansas is there any trip that didn't pay off like you planned for this and you did shoot some but you had already shot those or anything no, at each location, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to take Took one or two species okay. that were there. And it may yeah. not have been the species that I was after, but it still added added to everything. Do you know how many locations you went to? How many total locations did you have? how many, like, trips you took? I should, I should know this off the top of my head. It was, uh, man, I want to say one I want to say it was 14 different locations. Okay. Wow. Between yeah. everything, because we it, it was actually it was fifteen. Because in Sinaloa, we started uh, in Los Moches and we had to end in Culiacan. So we started in, in Los Moches. We were there for a cinnamon teal and a fulvus whistling duck. Got to cinnamon, but there was not a fulvus in sight. There were thousands of black bellies, but fulvus migrate farther south than black bellies. And I had, I had never hunted a whistling duck before in my life. Yeah, I yeah. I didn't know this. But we were already in the country, and I'm like, listen, I'm not going home without a fall of us. I don't care how far I got to go south. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know, Culiacan, if you know about the cartels, Culiacan's probably a spot that you don't really want to be <laughs> out to. We're, we're in and out. Yeah. Hey, at least yeah. you had a shotgun, right? I was literally yeah, exactly. going to ask you, I was going to ask you, what do you have like a sketchy or like a scary or like anything type of experience that happened during these... Not on, not on the waterfall one. Like, we never, in part of it's going with the right guys, but we never had a close call in a boat. We never had any of that stuff. You didn't we have never, any, like, you know, weird, eerie screams in the middle of, like, a 3 a.m. <laughs> decoy no, set or anything? No, none yeah. of that yeah. stuff. We had one. We were we were going to go out in Maine. We almost made a really bad decision to go out on the ocean in some, in yeah. some big, big ways, but that was, truthfully, that was when my dad was there, and he's like, it's not worth it. Let's head back. Yeah. Otherwise... Yeah. Me being young, dumb, and stupid, I'd have headed right out there. I'm like, yeah, let's, go, let's go get them as we're yeah. riding the waves up like in the perfect storm. Yeah. yeah, Mark, during this time, how much like how much of your life was dedicated to shooting these waterfall species? Like, Were you like f- solely focused on this and constantly on the road, or were you like life still juggling other shit? Life, like- life, life went on, but it was so the same thing with the Upland one. When I commit, when I committed to it, it was a hundred percent. I was going to complete it at the end, and so in between trips, I would come home for as much time as I could. But a lot of times, that would only be two, three, four days. Now we had yeah. some time around Christmas to where I was here, but I took off on the second of January right after New Year's, and I wasn't back until 
I don't know, it was like the 20th of January. So, I mean, there was missed my wife's birthday. It's like, there was a whole bunch of stuff that was missed along the way of this. Yeah. Um, and my wife's like, you said after the Upland Slam, you weren't going to do it again. And here we are doing it again. And luckily she, she, she gets it. She knows my crazy passions and everything I like to do, but it was a hundred percent commitment. Even when I was back here, I was still working on where else I had to go to get what. So it really wasn't, it wasn't until March that I fully settled down and kind of. Yeah, man, that's <laughs> what I'm asking. That's what I was asking. It's like, I mean, unbelievable. Like the amount, the amount of time that you must have just been committed to like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's what I mean. So like, okay, if you had two or three days at home, were you like at home? Like, okay, then we're going to go here. Like you were like calling people, planning with outfitters, yeah. like figuring it out. Calling. Calling, planning, cleaning shotguns, washing clothes. Like, you didn't wash it on the road. You watch. So it was like a full day was just saying getting your gear ready to take off again. And then it yeah. was the adjusting of where am I going next? When I'm home, I would always try to drop my kids off in the morning, pick them up from school in the afternoon. But that time in the middle and that time at night was like, I'm playing and I'm ready to rock and roll again. Totally. Yeah. Did, no. this, did this make you like waterfall hunting more or did it make yes. you more burned out on it? No, Absolutely. It's one of those things like upland hunting, did doing it all burn you out or in the same thing on waterfall? For me, no, it, it probably ignited the passion even a little bit more than what it was. Yeah. And it's so, now I, I was able to go to all these different locations and experience these things, but think about waterfall hunting. How many different locations are there to go? Yeah. Like, I, I, I just want to continue. I'm, I'm a big freak on new experiences and going to a new spot, experiencing the hunt with somebody new. That's a new experience and like, they're good ones and they're bad ones, but I'm just one that likes new experiences. Yeah. And being able to do this, I'm like, man, there's a ton of spots I want to go to do this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm like, we've, we've talked oh, about know. how Argentina would be so cool. And like, we literally yeah. talk about it all the time. Like there's so many things that like, yeah, like you said, a waterfowler's list could be pretty much endless. Cause the thing so is I'm too, a- I was going to say, it's like, we've talked about, you know, like going to different places and i'm you know some of the time it's like well yeah but we're not gonna like shoot a new species there and it's like i don't care you know like i want you know like being in flooded timber is cool you know like that's like whether you're out there and you shoot you know a wood duck or a mallard or whatever you shoot like hunting flooded timber Mm -hmm. if you're not from flooded timber is crazy yeah. You know what I mean? Just like we've had buddies come up from like the middle parts of the country or even like down south in Oklahoma and whatever, and they hunt cattle ponds and you take mm-hmm. them out on big water, you know, backwater on big water or like the Mississippi backwaters and try and shoot mallards in like marshes. Mm-hmm. They're like, wow, we're on a lake right now. You know, like it's crazy yeah. to them, yeah. but yeah. natural to us. So, yeah. So I've got. I haven't, I haven't officially told anybody this yet, but I'll, I'll let you guys know. So I got a little project I'm going to do over the summer. Okay. And that's going, that's going after the South American waterfall slam. Oh, oh wow. Now, so Argentina and Peru, I'm going to be spending a lot of time, a lot of time down there. So I, I, truthfully, the slams have changed my, and I don't know, do you guys have any kids? Not no. yet. Not yet. Okay. So life changes when you have kids. So yeah. my youngest is now, is now 12 and she's, she's into girls basketball. She loves it. So I realized very quickly, my oldest is 16, one in the middle at 14, the years go flying by. So I've adjusted my schedule to stay home more. And like my youngest, our bonding is really over basketball. So I coach her travel team and I started coaching the middle school team that she was on this year. And now I've started coaching in the high school too, just to be able to help 
her as she comes through. And that's, that's our thing. Like I'm, I'm here for that. So it's changed my filming schedule around. So I'm going to film a lot more in the spring, summer, and early fall before the season starts. So I'm like, man, what can I do? And I, as I, as you guys probably caught earlier, I love these slam ideas because it's yeah. so different. It, it's something drives me to do it and tell that story. So I'm like, man, I'm going to go after the South American one now. That's yeah, not that's nearly crazy. As many, it's not nearly as many. There are 22 species um, down in South America between Argentina and Peru that you can that you can legally hunt. So I'll be spending quite a bit of time down there this summer. That's cool. That's crazy, man. Have you ever thought like possibility, you know, to of of doing different types of water hunting, waterfall hunting videos in places like Europe or, um, you know, all that? Because I mean, we see like obviously I've seen some pretty cool stuff come out of like New Zealand. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like there, there is some cool stuff that's coming out of, come out of some different places, but not a lot of guys are like really showing a lot of like what can be done if you're willing to go overseas. Yep. Yep. So I've got on my list for the next few years, Australia, New Zealand, uh, parts of Europe, and then also parts of Africa. Okay. So again, Cause like, if, if you think about, so Africa and, and Europe are, they have great waterfall hunting. Mm-hmm. It's just not very many people in the population do it like here in the U S yeah. So that's where we're, we're kind of opening up these locations that are open, but just working with outfitters there to kind of highlight what they're doing. And for me, loving travel, loving new experiences, like I'm all over those. Like I want to go to Azerbaijan to go waterfall hunting. Like I want to go to these crazy <laughs> spots and do it. Yeah. Oh man, that'd be so cool. <laughs> for yeah. sure. What was your most like, what was the most fun hunt that you went on throughout the like 43 was there any like hunt that you went on where you were like this is almost like religious like this is just perfect it's beautiful i mean obviously the king eider but outside of that was there one that you were like this just feels different so so i did two trips down to mexico one one to sonora and we did we did a beach hunt there for pacific brant across from tiburon island in sonora mexico in sonora mexico we dug pits on the beach and oh, put cool. up decoys right on the beach, right into the ocean. And it was one of the most picturesque and fun hunts because you're sitting there and normally waterfall hunting, it's raining. It's cold. Yeah. Can't feel my feet. Can't yeah. feel my toes. It's 75 degrees there. What time of year sitting is this? On the beach. What's that? What time of year? It was December. Okay. December we were there sitting on the beach. And in Michigan, it's 30 degrees, spitting <laughs> rain. And I'm sitting on the beach, 75 degrees, and we shoot 10 brant in an hour and a half. And they're coming, I mean, these brant are coming into the decoys at 12 to 14 yards. I mean, just right off the water. That's That was one of those, I'm like, man, this was a fun day. There was no pressure. Like, it was just, there was one of those no pressure days. The weather was great. We picked everything up. We headed into the local town. We had a great lunch. We relaxed in the afternoon. I'm like... Like I, what days I look back, I'm like, man, that was a fun day. I would 100 percent go and do that for three days in a row. Right. Like oh I would, yeah. I, I probably told more people they're like, where, where would be a great spot for us to go and have fun? I'm like, you, you got to go there. Or we went down to where we're at in Sinaloa. Just the number of ducks, and it's it's different. Like you go out, the weather's good. It's the middle of winter, so for us, like, snow has already started. Now you get to go yeah. hunt 75 degree weather. There are a number of ducks. It's different species than what I'm used to, generally more colorful. And you're hunting different birds and it's liberal limits. Like you can shoot 20 birds a day. Yeah. yeah. So and you will. You will get to shoot 20 birds a day down there. So think about that. Like how many days you gotta go out here to grind 20 to when you can go down there. 
and have a great morning and really get 20. Yeah. It's just like there's, and there's no pressure because there's so many birds. It's not like up north to where you're like, man, we didn't get the mallard. We didn't get that group of mallards to commit. Mm-hmm. That may be the one group that we got for the day. And you're just sitting there like, it doesn't really matter. But in the back of your head, you're like, ah, we really wish we would have got her to come in. Something like one of those down there, there, there is none of that. You're like, ah, that bird flared. Well, there's a thousand more behind it. Yeah, <laughs> for one sure. Of parts, one of the parts that, again, I, I didn't know before this, how how the flyways work is certain percentages of the 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 total goal take for the populations happen in Canada. Obviously, the biggest portion happens in the U.S. And I want to say Mexico, like, it's 10 or 12 percent of the total the total take of the population of waterfall is supposed to take place in Mexico. Yeah. Well, there are hardly any waterfall hunters in Mexico, which is why they have the liberal limits, which I didn't know that before I started this either. I found out why they had the liberal limits because of that. And they're like, well, we need to try to shoot so many of these these ducks down here and because we don't have as many hunters as the u.s we have a higher limit for the people that are here to be able to shoot more yeah and they still don't come anywhere close to shooting as many as they're supposed to yeah huh so um did you uh, do you have these mounted or how many i was gonna say you you had to mount most of these Uh, they are they are in the process of of being mounted so all 43 from the what's that all 43 all 43. Nice. All 43. So Frank Newmeyer from the Wildlife Gallery, who's done all my bird bird work, is actually in the process of mounting them now. He sent me a picture. So I've got him going in a couple a couple different areas. I've got he's building this wave that's going to have all the sea ducks on it. Um, then he's got a mobile that's going to be hanging from part of my room that's going to have the geese and the larger species. And then we've got a dabbling wall. Like when it's done, it's going to be awesome. Dude, oh where is gosh. this going? In, in my in my house, right behind me, you can yeah. almost you can almost see. It. Yeah, for all those you can't right see there. on the podcast, Mark's got just like just about every species of animal. I was going to say, like, <laughs> literally, he has many. He has many Cabela's in his house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. There are a few. There are a few. Well, That's so crazy. I cannot imagine how much your taxidermist loves the shit out of you. Well, <laughs> and like like any good taxidermist, it takes them a little while to to turn them around. Oh, so, for sure. Of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this summer, but realistically it may be a little bit longer, but I, I can wait for them. Yeah, that's going to be, and then you're just going to be like, well, I just got back from Argentina, so here's a bunch more. <laughs> well, here, and here's the crazy thing. Like, in Argentina, you can't bring any of the birds back. Really? Yeah. Oh. So you can't bring any of those birds back, but in Peru, you can bring the birds back from Peru. Oh, okay. So, so I, haven't figured out, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do with the ones. So can you bring Argentina. them from Argentina to Peru? <laughs> <laughs> a little loophole. Yeah. Loophole. I, I mean, I, and I was going to say too, I don't know if it depends. Like, can you get them, you know, obviously like, can you do the taxidermy in Argentina and then ship obviously now they're fake birds? Really? Nope. They won't let you, they won't let you export them. Yeah. Holy I think that's crap. the same with puffins in Iceland. I was looking same into thing. that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so crazy. All right, I do want to know, having done this, if you could now pick at this point, like if someone could just do two trips, right, mm-hmm. this year, what would be the two trips you'd be like, hey, those two trips, you know, you got to go do that. Like it's so much fun. Uh, I'm going to give you four trips. Okay. Two two trips, like if I re- if, if somebody had the resources and the time to be able to get away and do it, Greenland. It's still like there's very few places in the world that are untouched for hunting. Sea duck hunting in Greenland is one of the untouched areas that there are left. That's awesome. Ducks do not 
they're not decoy shy. They're not spinner shy. The populations are extremely high. Like it is a mecca of sea duck hunting. Yeah. Not just for kings or commons. They're working on opening up the harlequin season, which will be late. So think about what a harlequin would look like in March. Oh. Yeah. Oh I had the gosh. I had the like, opportunity oh. to shoot a harlequin last year and so and mine's getting mounted right now. But uh, my, like, yeah, that that is it, cool. So Greenland because of that. Mexico in any of the locations in Mexico, just because of the variety of species that you'll get, but also the liberal limits. Yeah. Like those are two. Now I'm going to give you two, like if you stuck to the traditional North America hunts, like if yeah. this is lower, I'm going to say lower 48, even taking Alaska out because that's a, that's a heck of a journey to yeah. get up to Alaska. Yeah, totally. To go waterfall hunting. Off the East Coast being Maine, Rhode Island, or Mass. The hunt that I had, both off Rhode Island and especially Maine, like, I, I don't know if it was outdoor life or whatever, was when I grew up, I remember reading stories of sitting on the rocks off the coast of Maine, guys that would go there and, and shoot sea ducks. Yep. I don't know how many stories of these I had, but it's one of those things, like, I remember back as a kid, before you were really watching TV or doing anything, you'd read these outdoor lights with really grainy pictures in it and see this, <laughs> and like, it just stuck in my head. Like I wanted to do it. Yeah. So dad and I finally got out there with Lance and Emily Robinson this year. And, and our first day there was everything I read as a kid was everything. We set up on, on an Island right off the coast, right on the rocks. The, the tide is coming up. So we're having to adjust up the rocks with the tide. We got into commons, white wings, surf scoters, ruddy ducks. I mean, and it was it was just perfect. The waves were crashing. The ducks were working. And it was, I don't know if it was just my childhood coming back to me from all that reading. Yeah. But that was one, I would literally go and do that every single year. Yeah. I had, I had that much fun. And at night you're like, you're in Maine. We literally had lobster at night. I'm like, does it get any better than this? Like, this is, this is the, I literally, I just completed the story. I, the story I read when I was 12 year old, 12 years old down at my cabin. I just lived that story. Today. Yeah. We went out and shot sea ducks off the coast, watched the ocean, watched the sunrise off the ocean, sitting next to my dad. We went back and had lobster and beer for dinner. I'm like, I can die and go to heaven right now. Yeah. That, that was one of, one of those trips. The other one in the lower 48 for anybody that hasn't hunted Arkansas, the history in those blinds that you hunt down there yeah. is worth the trip. It's a good way so to put I it. hit it in, in a warm weather spell. It was a warm weather week when I was there. We, did we shoot ducks? Absolutely. Was the camaraderie great? Absolutely. The history of sitting in those blinds and the stories that are told about the mornings of the past in those blinds are worth the trip down there to go hands down. Yeah. I mean, just... And that's what people do there. They live and breathe waterfall hunting, flooded timber and fields. Everybody you see driving around is a duck hunter. Mm -hmm. They all yes. have shotguns in the back. They got decoys ready to go at a moment's notice. They've got a lab sitting in the back seat. Like that is who they are. Like, yeah. and it is, it's, it's just special. Like that was one of those spots. Like if you had two spots to go, that would have to be one of them. Yeah. Cool. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Very, very well put too. You know, like it's just those experiences described like, yeah, it's, that's, that's sweet. You know what, man? Like yeah. obviously you do hunt a lot of different species and so does Connor. And like, I, I do want to ask you like, is there, is there like a different like tradition and like culture and like feeling behind waterfowl than there is other types of hunting? Or is that just my perception? Like being a waterfowl hunter? So 
I would say that there is a difference between the a waterfall hunter and a waterfall hunter's passion compared to other hunters. Sure. And I, I don't mean that bad. I don't sure. mean that. It's just, it's just different. Like a deer hunter drive passion sense is different than a waterfall hunter. And it's, it's tough to touch. Like, like what I find crazy is that they're like, I grew up hunting everything. Any day I could get in the field, I would hunt. If it was ducks, if it was upland rabbits, squirrels, deer, you name it. I hunted it. And that's still how I am today. Like people ask me, what's your favorite? Whatever I'm doing tomorrow is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going waterfall hunting, upland hunting, it doesn't matter. Like I get just as much worked up of pulling a duck out of the water or grabbing a grouse out of my dog's hands that I do holding a 160 inch whitetail. Like the same, like that same feeling. And I always tell her, if I lose that feeling, I have to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Like if yeah, I totally. don't feel that passion every time that I, that I do it, I have to stop. But dealing, there are a lot of waterfall hunters that just, hunt waterfall just like deer hunters just hunt deer but that waterfall thing is it's not 60 days it's not the season it's literally all year just like deer hunters care about their food plots and their stand placements and all this waterfall hunters are just as freaky like it's 12 months a year it's not the 60 day season it's not the 15 day prep it's not the 15 day shutdown no they're doing just as much work over there yeah and what i find unique now is like every niche of hunter gear and equipment is it's like the it's getting bigger and bigger like everybody's like man what's the new gear and waterfall hunters are the same way like what new gear works what old gear works like just like i call gear junkies yeah like they've always tried just about every single thing on the market they may not have told you they've tried every single thing on the market you're right you may be in a blind with somebody that thinks they've got these brand new gloves and the dude farthest to the left over there is like I tried those gloves. They're garbage. <laughs> yeah. And he's oh, sitting yeah. over there. He's not going to tell anybody. He's always like, I already tried those gloves. They're not good. No. <laughs> yeah. They're not. They're For not sure. Good. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I always just ask because it's like somebody, somebody had said, like when we got off the plane the first time we went and hunted with our buddy Wade Shoemaker in Louisiana, um, you know, that's North Louisiana, like by Monroe, where like Duck Commander and whatever is from. And you get off the airport, you get off the plane in Monroe. It's only two good. gates. And in the actual pond there, they have duck decoys and mojos, like in the airport pond, you know? And it's like, the just like you said, in Arkansas, like in Stuttgart, like these people, like they're waterfowl people. Mm-hmm. Is there anywhere where it's like that, where it's like, these are deer people? I guess I don't deer know. People? Like, I just not, I'm not a big like deer hunter, but like, is there anywhere like people oh, yeah, identify Iowa. as like, I am, a, we are deer hunters here. You know what I mean? Iowa Park. Parts yeah. of Missouri, parts of Kansas, like okay. that, that Midwest, that Midwest yeah. vibe. Yeah. Um, but then, like, you go out to certain spots in Colorado, New Mexico, and they've got that I'm an elk hunter, or certain spots in yeah. Utah, I'm a mule deer hunter. Like, yeah. their their niches like that all Crazy. over for the certain things. But I mean, listen, waterfall hunting in the U.S. or or American citizens spreads from as far north as you can go to as far south. Yeah. Deer don't do that. Right. You don't have deer as far north. Yeah, you got blacktails up in part of Alaska, but the general Midwest or the whitetail hunter here is not traveling up to hunt those because it's not right. it's not a whitetail, it's a blacktail. And there's certain states that don't have it. Where in the US, besides Hawaii, you can waterfall hunt everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Man, it's it's just a wild thing. You know, and I think like it definitely 
it gets my head going a lot because I think a lot of guys too, like they get up brought up in waterfall and it's something that's so comfortable. Like it's mm-hmm. like out the back door, yep. but there's so many different experiences that are waiting out there. And I will tell you firsthand, the number one thing I have always told Joey and Connor, you know, about like the passion and joy that I get from doing Midwest flyways is not like shooting a different bird here or there, which that's amazing. But like, mm-hmm. dude, hunting, like riding down a levee at two thirty in the morning in a four wheeler, you know, in Louisiana to go and hunt. And we're two mm-hmm. hours from where we're hunting. That's just a totally different experience. Like that's so cool. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's yep. sweet. So I think it's cool to talk about waterfall hunters, like expanding kind of their horizons. And that's the memory right there of riding down that levee. That's what you remember most about today. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's not about the duck that you shot at nine fifteen or whatever it is. It's that experience that will drive you to go and do it again and again and again. Totally. Those are the memories that, that last forever. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, for this film that's coming out or that's already out, what, uh, uh, where can we find is on your YouTube channel? Yep. Yep. So it's, it's, it's been on waypoint and it's releasing on my YouTube channel. Okay. Which is, which is Mark V Peterson hunting. Cool. Sweet. Nice. And then uh, your social tags or whatever is just Mark. Yep. yep. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Mark V. Peterson Hunting. If you type that in there, you can't miss me. Heck yeah, man. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you and to just inspire the hell out of both of us. And I'm sure everyone listening to get out there and go and push your limits a little further and try and see new places and things. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, yep. And uh, okay. if you guys have any questions for Mark, you know, definitely hit up his video, hit it on the comments, um, let him know, because uh, it's, a, it's a sweet trip. and uh, You're going to be, yeah, slam. I only saw like a trailer to what I think the video is, and yeah. I was amped up. I was like looking at Connor, I'm like, dude, this is sick. So it's yeah. going to be, it's going to, it's badass, man. I'm super pumped to see it. So thank you for listening. Told, oh, sorry, go for it. I, t- I told the guys that did that trailer, I said, you knocked it out of the park because you got me excited to go and do it again by watching it, and I've already seen it. Yeah. I still got goosebumps from watching it, so you knocked it out of the park. Heck nice. yeah, man. That's so yeah. true. Go check it out, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the podcast.